listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for September 2015. Today's episode is titled, Apologetics in the Workplace. One of the purposes of every Christian is to bear witness to Christ in a positive way so that people are drawn to embrace Christ as their Savior and Lord. Part of the responsibility of organizational management is to find leverage points to present Christ in a positive light to all stakeholders, workers, customers, suppliers, contractors, and regulators. Since Christianity is a rational worldview in the sense that reason can be employed to present and defend it, management should seek to rationally present the truth about Christ using common ground with the stakeholders as launching points. Wise apologists will find points of commonality with stakeholders using wisdom gleaned from pundits to illustrate biblical truth, which will then be used to present a clear, compelling, and cogent case for Christ. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Apologetics in the Workplace. Well, today we want to continue our discussion of Acts 17. And uh, last time we talked about uh, the bias against Christ that was revealed in Acts 17, verses 16 through 21, when the Apostle Paul uh, was in Athens and discovered uh, something of the culture in Athens, which I'm sure he was not surprised at, but he discovered there was a tremendous bias there against Christ, which is a little surprising because Athens was a place where they prided themselves on listening to new ideas. And so you would think that that would, that would be a, an ideal place for him to introduce Christ and the resurrection and, of course, a Christian worldview to him. But the reality is the bias against Christ is in the hearts of everyone. And it showed up in his interaction initially uh, in the synagogue, in the marketplace, and with the philosophers there in Athens, particularly the Epicureans and Stoics who were specifically uh, pointed out as being there at that time. The Epicurean and Stoic streams were enemies. They were enemies. They did not uh, like each other at all. And the basic difference between the two was really fairly small. Uh, the Epicureans were all about living a pain-free, uh, comfortable existence. So they didn't want any physical pain, nor did they want any mental or emotional pain. And to them, that was a good life to be living pain-free. The Stoics, on the other hand, felt like the good life was being virtuous. And uh, so they were willing to sacrifice a little bit, suffer a little bit of pain for virtue. So they were, that's, that's where, largely they, where they were different. Sometimes people think that they're diametrically opposed philosophies. Well, they're not diametrically opposed. There's a lot of commonality. For example, the commonality between the two of them is that both of them were naturalistic. That is, they did not accept the Greek dualism of Plato. Uh, the Greek dualism of Plato said that there is a spiritual reality uh, or an intangible reality and tangible reality. But the Stoics and Epicureans rejected intangible reality and embraced only tangible reality. So they were forerunners to what we now know as naturalism. Naturalism is the view that there is no spiritual reality. There's only natural reality. And everything that happens happens as a result of the natural forces of the universe. In other words, the universe is very deterministic. Uh, there's no really, there's not much freedom involved at all. Of course, that particular worldview has lots of problems because most people want some sense of freedom in their worldview, but naturalism doesn't give you that. Well, Epicureans and Stoics had the same kind of thing. And the Epicureans and Stoics were both, uh, they were theistic worldviews, but 
Uh, in the case of the Epicureans, their view of God was that God was not connected to his universe and really not the cause of it, not the creator. They didn't have that sense. Both worldviews held to an, an eternal universe and were atomistic, and that is the universe is made up of these atoms, these indestructible atoms, eternal atoms that are controlled by natural forces. And then the uh, Stoics, their view was that, uh, yeah, God exists and he's around, but uh, he's really not powerful. He's not able to do anything, or they are not able to do anything. They tend to be polytheistic in their views. So these two opposing philosophical camps, when they're face-to-face -face with Christ, they express the reality that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, because basically the, the two enemies came together in their op opposition and the rejection of Christ. So that's largely what we saw when we talked about Acts 17, verses 16 through 21 in our last session. And that whole discussion last time set up the lesson for today, which is now where Paul is brought before the philosophical leaders, the thought leaders of his day in Athens to present his worldview. And that's what we're going to focus on today. Now, in my notes here, which I'm making putting them on the, the video so you can pick them off if you would like. I've done a little analysis of the Stoic and Epicureans, and you can see it's a very busy chart, and I've tried to synthesize a lot of stuff to get it on here and done a lot of reading about it, but if you're interested in looking more in depth, here's my analysis. I use my worldview tool. You can see on the column to the left is theology, ontology, epistemology, hermeneutics, anthropology, theology, teleology, and ethics. These are, this is the way I analyze worldviews, is to compare these areas of the worldview to see how they differ. And, of course, theology is the big one. Uh, it's the overarching, overriding uh, view of God that drives everything else. So that's in your notes. If you want to take some time and look at that, you're certainly welcome to do it. And if you want to talk to me, let me know. I'll be happy to talk to you about it. Another thing that helps me when I, when I study is I like to know ge geographically where the setting of things. So I, I did some work on trying to understand, you know, how the city of Athens was laid out. And there were three key areas that uh, the Apostle Paul dealt with. Uh, first of all was the Agora. The Agora was on the north side of the Oropagus. Uh The Oropagus is where he actually, uh, basically, they held court, and he, um, he actually defended uh, Christian worldview right there on the Oropagus, and you can see in the upper left-hand corner there, this is the Oropagus here, um, and at the base of the Oropagus is a plaque uh, which records the Apostle Paul's message. Uh, so it's very interesting how they've commemorated that historically. Well, just to the north of the Oropagus is the Agora. Uh, the Agora is the gathering point and the marketplace for the city of Athens. That's where he initially started doing his work looking for people to talk to in the marketplace as well as in the synagogue. So he, that's where he started stirring up trouble, and then once he got the attention of everyone, he wound up at the Oropagus. Now, the Oropagus is to the northwest of the Acropolis. The Acropolis is the tallest hill and contains, among other things, the temple, the Pantheon temple to Diana, the goddess of Athens. So it's a, it's a large outcropping way above the, the or surrounding area, and it, it contained a number of, of buildings, largely pagan temples, 
and uh, the Pantheon being the largest. And here you can see in this picture some remnants of that. So that kind of helped me get a, a sense of ge the geography and what he was dealing with. I found it very interesting that the Oropagus in the classical Greek times was really the center po centering point for not only uh, philosophical thought, but also for all the politic, the political uh, rulings of the time. This is where the Supreme Court of Athens met, and they dealt with all kinds of cases, civil and criminal cases, as well as philosophical issues. By the time that the Roman Empire took over Greece and they lost their power, all that was really left for the Oropagus to deal with was philosophical issues, and they did they did do, deal with some uh, some criminal issues, but they didn't deal with civil issues at all. So it was really a shadow of itself, but still, being there on top of that little hill, Paul standing uh, in front of these leaders, it was like he was be on trial. Uh, it would have been the same kind of thing if he had been happening three or 400 years before, he would have been on trial, but this time he was on trial in front of the philosophical leaders of the day. So let's take a look at Acts 17, verses 22 through 31, and see Paul's interaction here on the Oropagus with the philosophical thought leaders of, of Greece at the time. I'm going to read the text, and I'll, I'll take you back through some of the high points of the text and uh, hopefully help you understand what he was doing here. Uh, as you go through, I want you to notice how he connects with these people. This is a great example of how to be relevant with a people group who is very, has very different worldviews from you. And you'll notice that in his arguments here, he does not appeal uh, uh, overtly to Scripture. He uses Scripture, but it's covertly. His main argument is, is from general revelation, finding points of connection with the Greek worldview and building off those points of connection and offering them the differences between the Greek worldview and the Christian worldview. The text reads, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think about the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained he has given assurance for all this by raising him from the dead. Obviously, a very rich, well thought through, and well presented uh, presentation of the gospel. This was this was the, one of his apologetic messages. 
Apologetics has to do with defending the faith. So this is what he was doing here in this message. So he's on Mars Hill, and by the way, Mars Hill is a Roman name for the Oropagus. He's on Mars Hill now with these, these, these political leaders and these uh, philosophical leaders, and he starts out as many times uh, was done in those days with, with a compliment. Uh, he's going to commend them for something. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. That is, he recognized there was a theistic side of them. They were not atheists, even though many times the Epicureans were cured of, accused of being atheistic. They were really not atheistic. They were all theistic. It's just that uh, both the Stoics and the Epicureans, their view of God basically was so minimal that God really was not engaged in his universe at all. And he points out, as he was passing through and considering the objects of worship, I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Now, interestingly, the Stoics and the Epicureans did, were not idol worshipers. That's not something they did. So this would have been other world views there that he's making note of. And perhaps he's saying by this statement that the Epicurean and Stoics were really not very prominent, even though they were present. And we know this about the Epicurean worldview is it never really ca uh, caught on, even though uh, it's a form of hedonism, which today is very, very common. It's a little different form. Hedonism today is all about fun and pleasure. Well, the Epicureans were not about after fun. What they were after is, is the absence of pain. So the absence of pain meant that they left a very, they lived a very simple life. They didn't. They did not try to complicate their lives at all, and that would many times mean abstaining, for like from like, uh, for example, relationships. They would abstain from sexual relationships because a sexual relationship would require you to to relate to a human being, and that human being could reject you and cause you pain. And so their solution for that was just don't have that relationship at all. So that's the way they'd pursue it. The hedonism today is all about you know you know, having as much pleasure as you possibly can. So it, the hedonism of that day was different from the one that we know of today. So Paul is uh, starting out here, you know, connecting with a lot of people with a complimentary phrase and noting that there is a, a an idol he noticed or some kind of, uh, of little, you know, I don't know exactly what it was, whether it was a little temple or it was an altar or an idol, some kind of image that he saw, and on it was inscribed to the unknown God. Interesting, the, the word for unknown is the word agnostos. Agnostos, we get an uh, agnostic from. It's somebody who claims that they can't know. And so that is the, the Greek idea, you can't know. So there's, the Greeks are trying to hedge their bet here. Uh, we're trying to appease all the gods, and the main reason we want to appease the gods is so they don't interfere with us. You have to understand that the Stoics and the Epicureans, their view of God was that God would just create chaos if he's engaged. So we're going to assume he's not engaged because we want to, we want to have certainty of knowledge. And the only way you have certainty of knowledge is you can't have a whimsical God engaging. And the Greco-Roman view of God was that the gods were very whimsical. So they, they a priori excluded the idea that, that there would be a God engaged in the universe. So these uh, altars or these idols to these unknown gods were probably not associated with Epicureans and Stoics. 
because they had a very strong view of that, that God was not engaged. But there were others there that probably had the view that, well, we, we know gods are around. They do things and we want to appease them. We want to be sure we don't leave any of them out. We're very exclusive, very pluralistic culture. So they had this, this idols or these, uh, uh, some, in some way they were making, uh, some concession to the unknown God. And so then after he makes this complimentary statement, he first thing he tells them is you need to understand that the Lord of heaven and earth, and by the way, in the Greek language, for those of you that are studying Greek, uh, the definite article is used here, which puts, puts a very interesting emphasis on it in the Greek language. It's referring to the God, not to a God. So the polytheism right here of the Greeks is attacked by the use of the definite article. The God, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. You see, when you make an idol or a little temple or you an altar, you create this out of your own mind. It's a way for you to define God. And if you can define God, you can control God. And that was important to the Greeks. They wanted to be in control. They wanted to be in charge. So he's saying to them, yeah, you've done this, and you think in some way that's going to appease God, but the reality is the God who made the heaven and the earth is not under your control. You can't define him. You can't contain him. You cannot control him. That's not even possible. So then he goes on to say, furthermore, He's not worshipped with men's hands. And this word worship here is interesting because it's the word therapeuo. Now, we get the word therapeutic from it in English. Something that's therapeutic is something that's healing. So it's, a th it's the same kind of thing here. It's a sense of healing. You, you can't in, in some ways heal this malady of this God, heal his anger. You know, you know, and many times in the, the Greco-Roman world, they viewed the gods as being angry and they would war with each other and that would cause calamity in the natural world. So they're worshiping, you know, the gods to kind of appease the anger. That's what they're after. And he's saying, uh, that isn't the way it works. You, he's not worshiped with men's hands as though he needs something. He needs nothing from you because he's the one who gives life and breath to and everything to people. People don't serve him that way. That's not the way it works. And then he goes on to another topic. In the Greco-Roman world, they were very much believed that someone who was philosophical awareness, metaphysical awareness, um, they, had, they were superior people. So they were basically, the Stoics had two categories of people. There was the ignorant people and the wise people. And here he's attacking that very idea by saying, there's no such thing as ignorant and wise. All people have come from the same source, the same root issue. They are all people that have come from one person, one blood from every nation. Now, this was a great frontal attack on the worldview of the Greeks and the Romans at that time. And furthermore, God is deterministic. Now, the, the Stoics and Epicureans believe that, that the world was deterministic in that it was driven by the naturalism of the world only and by natural law. So the atoms of the world were governed by the natural law and everything is made up of atoms. 
So with that, that particular view, determinism was the logical implication. Well, he said, yeah, it is deterministic, but it isn't determined by natural law. It's determined by the creator, the God who made everything, and he pre-appointed the times and the boundaries of the dwellings of human beings. In other words, everybody lives where they live, where they live for a reason. Everyone, everyone lives when they live for a reason. Everyone is therefore created for a purpose, which gets back to the whole SLA message that, you know, with an intentional, purposeful God, one of the things that we must do as His creatures is to discern why He made us and what He's put us here to do. So Paul here is alluding to that reality here and how he's describing this intentional God. And of course, the purpose for why God has done all this is that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they may grope for him. Now, this word grope is, you know, it's interesting. It uh, literally means touch. Uh, and it metaphorically implies a, a mental seeking that's going on here. But it, this phrase here is a conditional phrase. In the Greek language, there are four types of conditional phrases. This happens to be the fourth class conditional phrase, and it implies fulfillment and doubt. So it's very interesting to see how, and how he phrased this in such a way, he's recognizing that not everyone is going to receive this. So it's a subtle appeal to the reality of the Holy Spirit moving in their hearts. Now, I don't know, you know if they picked up on that or they were able to really sense that, but Paul was, I think, very precise about how he expressed this. And it, it kind of reminds me of, um, of Plato's cave. Some of you are familiar with Plato's cave, and all the people here probably were very familiar with Plato's cave. And Plato's cave was a, a, was a little uh, a, an image to try to express the truth that Plato was trying to, to convey. And in this image, he views creation as basically all humanity like uh, slaves in a cave who are chained, who can't move and can't move their heads, and they're facing the wall of this cave, the back of the cave. And behind them, there is an exit to the outside. And above that exit, there is a fire. And between the, the people and the fire, there are figures that go back and forth that cast shadows on the front of the cave that the people in the cave can see. And because they don't know anything else, they think those shadows are reality. And Plato then, you know, argues that, well, someone is set free by some unknown means and allowed to go out of the cave and see now in the sunlight, they have a totally different experience with reality because now they see reality and all the beauty of reality. It's not shadows. It's not forms. It's real things. And the people in the cave have no clue that those real things exist because they think what they see is reality. So he uses that to illustrate the distinction between the people who are unenlightened and the people who are philosophically enlightened. Now, the interesting thing about this is the people that are philosophically unenlightened, they're chained. Well, how do they get unchained to go out of the cave and now see the truth? Well, he never answers that question, but Paul here subtly appeals to it. It's a very subtle appeal, and I think what he's saying here is that no one's going to you know, seek God, mentally seek God, unless they're empowered by the Spirit. 
This whole empowerment idea is interwoven in here in a very subtle way. It's not overtly at all. It's, it's very covert because the Greeks assumed that they had the potency in themselves to do whatever they needed to do. And Paul is subtly saying here, nope, can't do it. God set it up so that you would seek him, but you're not going to do it. Well, well, how's it going to happen? How can we then seek God? Well, it, it's going to be the Holy Spirit touching you. The Holy Spirit has to empower you. That's the Christian answer, although he's not explicit about the answer. There, that should have tickled them to want to know more, and perhaps it did. It's just that we don't have a record of that. So the purpose here, what God is after when he created the universe, was he's after men and women that will seek him, that will come to him. And in a fallen world, in a world of depravity, in a world we are chained to sin, we're never going to do that unless the Spirit of God moves in us, which is why when we work with people, try to disciple people, we must always seek to find those whom the Spirit is working with. And Paul is trying to do that here. He's not expecting all these people to acknowledge what he's saying, but in the end, you'll find that there are two people at least that did acknowledge this. So he goes on from there and says, uh, that they might grope after him and find him, though he is not far from each uh, one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Now, with that phrase right there, he zeroed in on one of the great debates and discussions of Greek philosophy. And that is, what is the question of being, who are we, and the question of movement, motion? You see, the Greeks wrestle with that and struggle with that. And here he's saying, I, hey, here's the source. The source of being and motion is the creator. This is the answer. All of your answers, which you've developed, and you've developed as just ideas in your head, independent of the revelation that God has given humanity, you have missed it. Totally missed it. It's a way to say you've blown it. You've totally blown the reality of how God works. So it's God who defines being. It's God who defines motion. This word here for movement is kineo. We get kinetic energy from that. It's, it's the energy of motion. And our being there, s men here, is the word for being. It's to be. That's the to be word in the Greek language. Goes on to say, as also some of your poets. Now he's going to quote a third century BC Stoic poet. And this is very important. He's not appealing to special revelation, although throughout his discussion here, he's using truth that's in special revelation, that is scripture. He's not you know, specifically referring to it because they don't bend the knee to the re special revelation of scripture. So he's going to appeal to a poet, a third century poet that captured truth about God and build off of that. And the truth he got is the statement, we are his offspring, therefore since we are his offspring, since that's true, he's saying, since you accept that as true, here's an implication of that truth, where now he's using reasoning and logic, which is a real important thing to the Greeks. They're all about being logical. So now he's going to say, look, if, we're, if we are his offspring, we reflect him, then you should not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. You see, if we're animate beings, that suggests our creator must be an animate being as well. Now, that would have been a powerful argument to the Greeks because they were they prided themselves on logic, being very logical. So 
he's now basically saying all of these idols and images you've got, hey, you got it all wrong. I mean, your own philosophers, your own poets have told you that we're his offsprings, and you need to get clear on that. So he's really laid out his powerful argument to, to lay out that, that God, the creator, is the Lord of all, the source of all, the meaning of all, the definer of all, and now your job is to seek him. He says, truly these times of ignorance, that is not knowing, agnoia, lack of knowing or ignorance, God has overlooked. God is forbearing you with you, patiently waiting on you, but now he commands you and everyone to repent. That word repent is metanoia. Noia means mind, as meta means against. It means there needs to be something against your mind to change how you think. Your thinking is wrong. That would have been very offensive to them because they prided themselves on correct thinking. The developer of logic was none other than Aristotle, and logic meant to think correctly. So these people would have been very, very familiar with that reality, and now Paul is telling them, no, nope, your logic is flawed. You need to change your thinking. Your thinking is bad. And he concludes here with a, with a powerful empirical evidence to support him. And again, rational empirical data was very important to the Greeks. So he says, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has ordained. And he's given us assurance. And this word assurance is the, literally the word faith. It's pistis, which means faith. He's given us faith for all of this by raising him from the dead. Now, this would have been empirically verifiable reality. Had they spent some time, they would have found that, indeed, there were strong reasons to believe that this indeed did happen. And that would, that would just kind of seal it for them because of their empirical orientation, their rational orientation, that now he's presented to them a worldview that's very different from theirs, but a worldview that is very compelling, a worldview that, that connects to what they're doing in some ways, but a worldview that offers a totally different perspective in other ways. So this is the Apostle Paul's presentation of, of Christ based on a rational empirical approach to general revelation and special revelation subtly woven in here. It's one of the great arguments, great apologetical arguments perhaps that's ever been made and a great model for all of us to study to learn how to be relevant as we present the gospel to various worldviews in the cultures of the world that we're in today. So may the Lord give us grace to learn how to do this powerfully and to be as effective as the Apostle Paul was in Jesus' name.